Dear Heavenly Father, first of all, just thank you so much for today, for health and for life. Um, we love you and we thank you for all that you give us. I pray that you open our hearts and minds for the reading and preaching of the word today. Um, please give Pastor Matt the words to say um, that will allow us to have the needed conversations and dialogue and experiences throughout the week as you would have. Um, we love you and we praise you in your name. Amen. All right, good morning. How's everyone? Y'all know we have coffee in the, in the lobby, right? I, okay, I'm going to give us about 10 minutes worth of the sermon uh, to find out how this goes, and then I might just like give a mandatory coffee break. Everyone go out, get a double shot, and then come back in, all right? Just making sure that you're okay. We are in our Abide series. That's what we're calling this sermon series. We're taking some, some time here at the beginning of 2023 to refresh ourselves and re reorient ourselves toward who God made us to be and what he wants us to do. What's his purpose? Why did he make us not only Christians, but why did he put us together and make us a church? And we, it's our purpose statement that we read at the beginning of worship service every week. And in fact, when we say this, this morning when Christian led you through this statement, we're already worshiping now. We're worshiping the Lord by honoring him and replanting ourselves because we probably have had some of our roots come up throughout the week perhaps through trials or difficulties or the concerns or, or troubles or, or things of this life. So we're replanting in worshiping the Lord, reminding ourselves who Jesus is, who we are, what he made us to be, right? We're honoring him. And that statement is that we make disciples of Jesus on the mission of Jesus for the glory of Jesus. God's purpose for why he put us together as his disciples is to make disciples. That's what we are and that's what we do. Now the second two component the second two components of that statement, a mission of Jesus for the glory of Jesus, they describe what sort of disciples the Lord has called us to make. What sort of disciples that we are to be and we are to produce by his power and grace. Ones whose lives center around Jesus's mission. Like our life, your life, the kind of disciples that we ought to be and we ought to make are the kind of people who our lives are centered around. They, they, like satellites, they, they go around and revolve, pointing inward, looking at the center of the gravity of their whole life, which is Jesus' mission. And what's his mission? It's putting the glory of Jesus on display to the world around us to show that he's good to show that he's worthy, to show that he's powerful, to show that he has authority, to show that he is perfect and that he's gracious and merciful in all of his goodness. How do we do that? How do we accomplish that mission? What's the strategy? By depending on Jesus for satisfaction in our every need and essential desire. By being exactly who God created us to be, built, wired, designed with needs and dependencies, and instead of going and digging any well of our own or finding some other well, we find him to be the well of the water of our lives. And every time we go, Jesus has met my need, he has satisfied my need, satisfies my desires, I won't go anywhere else, and when that gets expressed, other people end up finding out whether or not they're going to believe it or not, but they end up finding out that you at least depend on him and he satisfies you. He's glorified, he's honored. And so we, we feel it good and necessary to make sure, not simply assume, 
but to make sure that we understand what God says a disciple is. We turn to his word for that. So here's, here's the brief version of our definition that we're going we're gonna to try and own and walk in together. Our definition of what a disciple is. A disciple of Jesus is a person who stays with Jesus. They stay with Jesus. The capital letter S-T-A-Y-S. Now that's, that, that word stay, that's a synonym for this word abide. A disciple is one who abides with Jesus. To, to abide means to stay and dwell. It's a, it's a word that Jesus uses actually a bunch of times in John chapter 15, which we saw a few weeks ago. But this word stays is also an acronym. It's an acronym that we're going to use to help us remember how to unpack that definition of what a disciple is, right? What does it mean then to stay or abide? And so you see on the screens, hopefully you, you see this list, this acronymical list, S-T-A-Y-S. Week one, we've already covered this. S, a, a disciple surrenders, and by the way, is surrendering to Jesus. T, a disciple is transformed by Jesus. And in fact, a person who's been, been transformed by Jesus, they become an agent of his transformation to people and places, environments, and ideas around them. And today's letter of this acronym, A, a disciple of Jesus, abides with Jesus. They abide, they stay with Jesus in their everyday life. Why? And next week we'll get into this, uh, the next two. Uh, a disciple yield to, yields to the spirit of Jesus. And S, a disciple serves in the community into which Jesus has placed them. Now, today we're going to learn and meditate on what it means to, A, abide with Jesus as a disciple. Our, our main passage today is John chapter 13. And, and so if you heard what I just said a few seconds ago, you go, wait, wouldn't it make more sense to preach from John chapter 15 where Jesus uses the word abide a bunch? That would make sense, right? Uh, but we're in John 13 today, and hopefully you'll understand as we go. I'm going to ask a question to get, get us really into this, into this uh, message and like, what we're going to do today. Um, can you finish this sentence? I want you th if you know any of your Bible, I want you to think if, and, and can you fill in the blank here? The Son of Man came to blank. The Son of Man came to blank. Now, if you've got one of those in your head, yay, all right? If you, some of you can think of two places that scripture fills in that blank. In fact, there's actually three places in the scriptures where that sentence is stated, and all three have different endings, all right? The Son of Man came. By the way, Son of Man is Jesus' nickname for himself. It's this prophetic Old Testament nickname for himself. He's the Messiah. So, the Son of Man came. Gold star to you if you can finish that. The Son of Man came not to serve, but to not, not, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Son of Man came seeking to save those who are lost. He didn't come for the righteous, but he's come for the unrighteous. didn't come to find the healthy, but to find the sick and bring them life and healing. But the one I, I want to really bring us into John 13 with is this one, when Jesus says, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. Now, there's a context for when Jesus says this, right? The Son of Man came eating and drinking. Uh, the, the, first, the first two of those, by the way, uh, 
Jesus came, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, give his life as a ransom for many. He came seeking to save those who are lost. Those two are the reasons why the Son of Man came. Both of those statements indicate, they teach why Jesus came. But that third one, it tells us how he, do, how he does it. What's his strategy? Like, this is how he is coming to do that sort of thing. Now, that third one has some context I just said. Um, when Jesus says this, the religious people of his day, they were calling him a sinner and a false teacher, and they, they even accused him of having a, a demon. And why? Because Jesus was spending a lot of time with sinners, tax collectors, uh, drunk people, thieves, uh, even prostitutes. He was going and having dinner and spending a lot, a lot, a lot of very like, like important time uh, with sick people, poor people, low, lowly people. And so they go, you're a sinner. You, you're definitely not from God. You're not, a very, you're, you're not a good rabbi, right? You're a false teacher. And he says, look, John the baptizer didn't touch nothing, didn't eat bread. He ate bugs, all right? He didn't drink wine. He, like, he, he drank water. He didn't have any fun. He didn't go to parties, okay? He was a Nazarene prophet. He was spiritually, morally, and religiously strict, all right? He didn't watch no YouTubes. He didn't make any Instagram reels, right? He wouldn't have any parties. He... And, and you said he was a demon? He, you said he had a demon. Well, tell you what, I, I went the opposite direction. Right? I, I eat, I drink, I make merry, I'm lighthearted, I'm kind, I'm with the people, I'm with the lowly people, and you call me a sinner. And here's the, here's the problem with, in that context. They're going, ah, we don't like the way he did it. Okay, fine, I won't do it his way. Ah, we don't like the way you do it. You know what, the problem isn't with what we're doing or what I'm doing. The problem is that you're not in control, right? You don't like this song, you don't like that song. Problem isn't with the kind of song that's being sung. You just want, you want the song to be yours, right? You want it to be your way. Well, Jesus says, here I am eating, and bre- eating bread and drinking wine. I'm at dinner tables. I'm having meals. I'm spending time, intimate time, long and large amounts of time with people in fellowship at these tables sharing meals with them. And that's the setting of John chapter 13. Jesus has summoned his disciples to a table to have a meal together. He comes eating and drinking, not to be served, but as you, if you know anything about John 13, but in order to serve and to bring life. He comes seeking to save the lost. And so he invites them to a table. And here in John 13, it's the last night of Jesus' life, for tomorrow he goes to the cross and dies. Tonight, after dinner, he's going to be arrested. But here, He's invited them to his table, and he serves them, right? Meals, meals were important, not just for, like, for like, food and sustenance, for, like, nourishment, but in this culture, and, and honestly, even to a large extent in our modern culture, like, meals are really important. It's not only for nourishment, but also for fellowship and celebration and remembrance. In this culture, especially for the Jews, Meals were for, for family and, and community gatherings, right? Something really important was supposed to happen every day for the Jewish family, for the Jewish community. In fact, like throughout the whole Old Testament, God, can, God keeps on commanding his people, hey, uh, I, want you to, to, I want you to establish another feast, right? Here's another opportunity, another day that you need to set aside and make a big table and get everyone around it, get the family around it, get the town around it, get all my people around it, and you're going to celebrate a meal. And he was taking them to these tables. What was happening there? Well, there was eating. 
And, and when, when God's people met around a table to eat, here's what, here's what it meant to eat. They were reminding themselves and teaching their young, and they were te- teaching their own children, and even teaching other people who maybe weren't of their people but sat down at the table because they were invited. They were teaching them about how God supplies their needs, right? So, I, like, so I'm at your meal or we're sharing food and someone goes, does someone want to bless the food? Like in my head, I blow the whistle, but I'm, I try not to Jesus juke anyone. The food's already blessed. God is very good. He gave the food. It's already blessed for your goodness. He gave it to you. He loves you, all right? right? But, but we should still bless the food because in this moment, we're remembering and reminding ourselves that this food that we need to survive just to be sustained was given to us by God. So please, never worry if, you, if I'm there and you go, let's bless the food. Oh, no, Pastor Matt, I said, no, don't even worry about it. It's good. Keep going, all right? But there's something else that's happening here at these meals, these festival meals, and that ought to happen at the table with God's people, is that they drink. And here, in, at this table, what are they drinking? Grape juice, because it wasn't, it wasn't strong alcohol. Of course Jesus wouldn't drink alcohol at the table. He wasn't a sin. No, it was wine. It was real alco- alcoholic wine, right? What, when they drink, what they're doing is they're remembering, and they are reminding themselves, and they're teaching one another that God is their source of satisfaction and joy and merriment. Because the Bible says in the Old Testament, wine is given to you as a gift from God for your merriment. Not for your drunkenness, not for your getting crunk and crazy, right? But it's for your merriment. It's to, to help you make your heart light, right? God wants to help you and love you and show you that you can enjoy your life. You can relax. It's, you, you worked for the food. Now you celebrate with the wine. And then the third thing that's supposed to happen at these tables is is remembering, simply remembering, opening God's word, opening our mouth, sharing and telling the stories of who God is, what he's done, and who we are because we're his people. So we, we remind and we share and we continue to monumentalize, right, um, what God has done, how he's protected us, fought for us, won victories for us, spoken to us, and he'll always be there for us. And here in the Gospel of John 13 through 16, Jesus has invited his disciples to eat the most important and sacred meal that the Jews had at that time. In fact, they still observe it today. It's called the Passover meal. And they're at a table. That's where some of the most important things in life happen. I want you to think for a second of what it was like for the 11 disciples who were at this table and stayed at this table. That's why I said 11. Because you notice when Sinitra read this, there were 12, but one got up and he departed. So I want you to consider what it was like for these 11 who were invited and stayed. The Passover, this Passover was a meal that they had grown up celebrating and they looked forward to it like some of us look forward to Christmas Eve dinner, right? With great expectation. This is a special day, a special, a special meal, right? It was what they had grown up celebrating as they looked to the past. The Passover reminded the Hebrews of the past, of how God had saved his people. And it was also the way that these men had grown up celebrating, not only looking to the past at how God had saved his people, but they used the Passover as a way to look forward into the future to the promised Messiah who would once again fully and finally save and rescue God's people. But this was a really, really special Passover to these guys. Like they, you have to understand like the, the almost the mystical, like all, 
perhaps like kind of even frightening, scary, oh my gosh, it's here, he's here, the thing is happening, kind of feeling, because they're at the table, and this is not just a Passover where they're looking back to how God had saved, nor looking simply forward to how God would save them, but they were sitting at the table with the person of salvation himself. They believed that. They knew and believed that Jesus was the Messiah. He was the promised one. This is a, this is a brand new, totally different Passover. Same, but different. This table and the meal were, were already important to them. But it just got jacked up to an infinite level of importance and significance for them because of who was at the table with them. It was Jesus. And they were invited to his table. I want you to think about how they felt. They'd seen his power over the winds and the waves, over the storms. They'd seen his power over demons and death and sickness. And so Jesus' disciples, they felt safe with Jesus at his table. They had been invited to live with him and learn from him. For years, he had called and included them, and he had personally taught them. He had commissioned them. They did discipling and teaching and preaching work alongside of him, even healing and miracles that he empowered them to do. And so here tonight at his table, they felt like they belonged with Jesus. They, they felt like they belonged. They were accepted. They were included. They, they knew who Jesus was, not simply an important rabbi, he wasn't just a contemporary celebrity pastor. He was healer. He was miracle worker. He was feeder of thousands miraculously. He was raiser of the dead, cleanser not only of leprosy, but cleanser of sins. He was Lord and master over the natural world, the son of God. And so being invited and included with Jesus at his Passover table, that gave them a sense of significance. They felt like they were significant, like they mattered because they were with the one who mattered most and he had invited them. His significance was now bathing them. They were with him. They were also satisfied. He'd provided wine and bread. He'd given them sustenance. He gave them what they need, food, bread for sustenance. He had given them wine for celebration, which you are to drink for merriment and joy and celebration. And they were enjoying this life which God, Jesus, sustains. And so the disciples felt, they felt satisfied with Jesus at the table. They knew they had what they needed. In fact, they even knew what they, 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 they had what they wanted. And they were at ease. They were at rest. At, at this table, they, they were at peace because Jesus had been with them and because they knew, they knew who he was and what he could do. They knew how he felt about them. Because in this conversation at this meal, he's going to go, listen, I no longer call you servants. You're my friends. Because you, the master doesn't, doesn't invite the servants to the table and share with them what's on his heart and mind and tell them about his future plans. But that's what I'm doing here with you. You guys are, with, you guys are my friends. I'm the master. You're not simply servants. You're my friends. You're with me. And so they felt comfort, comforted and secure. That's what they were experiencing at this table with Jesus. Now, if you've if you haven't caught on yet, all right, catch up. I'm going to wear this metaphor out, right? That's my, that's my goal. I, I want every single one of you to, like, if you hear the word table, it's going to be almost like someone slipped you some LSD and the CIA jacked with your brain. You're like, just like, all of a sudden you want to kill the president because you heard this code word table, right? I'm going to wear this, this metaphor out today, table, okay? But this, it's so incredibly important and central and just the reason I'm using it is because just about everyone in here can understand and has access to this metaphor. So 
What, what can we learn about being a disciple of Jesus and abiding with him, being someone who abides with him, through the setting of John 13, this table which Jesus invites his disciples? So glad you asked, because I'm going to answer that here. All right. Number one, four points. Here we go. Number one, everyone is sitting at some table. Every single one of us is sitting at a table. Right? This metaphor, this place you go for comfort, for security, for sustenance, for satisfaction, right? for significance, for meaning, for inclusion and approval. Everyone is at a table. It's not a matter of if you're going to go to a table, if you're going to go and try and find that for yourself. No, every single human being, Ecclesiastes 3 says, is created by God with a God-sized hole in their heart. He has put eternity into your heart into your soul, and you're created, like, our, the, like I said in the, like the pre-sermon to the sermon series, you were created dependent. You were created with needs, right? The problem isn't that you have needs. That's, that's by God's design. It's on purpose. It's not the problem for God that you have needs. He's never had a problem that you have needs or desires. He's never had a problem that you need and want provision or protection or learning or acceptance. He doesn't have a problem with the fact that you want and need. You desperately are looking for love and approval and meaning. And you're looking for someone to admire you and want you and find you useful and helpful. He has no problem with your need for healing, for relief from shame and guilt. He doesn't have a problem that you are burdened by anxiety or fear or depression. He's never had a problem with that. He's never sucked his teeth out. What is wrong with you? No, that's that's never been the problem. The problem he's always had is that we are sitting down at other tables than his to go and find those needs and desires filled. Because the table that he sets for you with him in, in your life, that, that's where he is and what he gives, that's what he has for you. That there's no greater and better and more satisfying, faithful, reliable table. He's not upset that you need the food or the wine. He's upset that you're going to some other table thinking you're going to get what he provides there. That's the problem. So what table are you sitting at in your life, for your sustenance and survival, for your, for your joy and satisfaction, for your happiness and merriment? What lesser bread and wine have you been feasting on and continue to find yourself not actually filled, still not actually at peace? Comfort and rescue, relief continue to elude you. What's, what's the metaphorical table you've been sitting at? All of us are sitting at one. There, there are positive tables, right? There are positive tables that we're, we're, we're invited to sit at, ones that promise us good things. And if, I mean, if you, most of you, many of you in here have been with me long enough, I, I just go, I go through continuously uh, uh, either the same or similar list. Why do I never change? Because look, we never change. The, these are the things that are in us. And so God's word speaks to them. What's the positive table that you sit at? The thing that, that something in your life that you sit at and dwell at and abide with because it's promising to fulfill some need or desire. Your career or possessions table, the lifestyle table that you need. Doesn't have to be opulent, right? You know, I don't need to live like Mr. Beast, right? In a big mansion, giving away a bunch of money and having fun with my friends all the time. If you don't know who that is, YouTuber, go look him up. He's wholesome and nice. He's fun, right? 
Maybe reti this retirement plan, my, my whole life is centered around being able to be done with work so I can kick back and have the life that I've dreamed of, right? It's in Florida or Arizona or in the mountains, at the beach, right? And like life slows down and now I get to do things I want to do, right? I, I, we finally earned them and, and now we get to, ah, right? It can be a table that goes, yeah, there, there's, there's a heaven here to be had on earth. I just got to retire to get to it. It, it could be at social tables, a, a table that says, I, I can be attractive, or I can, I, if I can just be at this table and learn to be well put together, have my life finally reflect an orderly or, or Pinteresty type like life where things are clean and nice and trendy. Maybe, uh, maybe, maybe I, I need to like, sit at the table, and, and if I can just at this table learn from other people at the table and become one of them where I'm like the ultimate Christian homeschooling, breastfeeding, uh, like stay-at-home mommy, right? And I, I, I make all the right decisions for my kids, right? And they have the best care, and they get the best education. Or you're like, the, you're just, I'm going to be at the table, and I'm going to be like, you know, the Yellowstone dad, but not evil like John Dutton, but like I'm going to be a doodly man. I'm going to run things and teach my kids like the manly things, right? And we're going to be orderly, and they're going to respect me, and they're going to obey their mom, right? None, none of that, by the way, is bad. This social table in which you have influence or that you're included at the center of a group, maybe cultural tables where you're, you're at the right table, indicating that you're a good person, you're on the right side of things, a cultural or, or even socio-political table. And, and those socio-political tables, they're, it's not, it's, they're not purely political. They're religions. They're, they're alternative religions to Christianity, all right? But you, need to be at, you want to be at the right table, which the good people sit at, when it comes to gender or sexual identity or sexual ethics or economics or government or laws and all sorts of other trending issues. And these... These and others are the kinds of tables that you really, really desperately want to sit at. You're trying to find the meal that'll feed you and satisfy you, bring you comfort, bring you significance, make you feel like you matter, make you feel like you're good, clean your conscience. No, I don't have to worry. I'm okay, right? And you're being invited to those tables to eat that kind of bread and drink that kind of wine. But there's, there's also some negative tables that some of us are either sitting at or 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 even maybe even like we're kind of chained to a particular table, right? Maybe a negative table. This would be the kind of life table that you do, you didn't simply get invited to. You you were pla you feel like you were placed there, like you were assigned it. You like you were banished to that table, like you're perpetually like assigned, and you're never going to graduate from the kids' table at Thanksgiving, right? You'll never get to go to the adult table where all the like the the real stuff's happening. Maybe this is my lot in life. It probably feels like I'll, I'm, never I'm never really going to be allowed to move on from here. Maybe, maybe some of you feel like you, you just kind of deserve to be at this one. Right? I deserve to be at this one. I need to know my place. Only the right kind of people belong at those other tables. I don't belong there. I'm not like them. I'm not good enough like them. I'm damaged. I'm messed up. I'm not smart like them. I'm not wise like them. I'm not strong like them. I'm not skilled like them. I need to get used to this one. I need to shut up and I need to eat my crusty old past due date bread that they gave me from the you know, out of date bread shop bakery. I just need to be satisfied with this dingy old gas station wine that tastes like cough syrup. And shut my mouth because this is the table I'm at. I don't deserve any better. I would never even look at another table. 
That's just, that's where I belong. So I want you to know with this point one, my friends, everyone's sitting at a table, and I want you to know that every single one of the disciples here in John 13, they'd been sitting at a different table when they met Jesus. He comes and finds them at their tables. Not a single one of them deserved to be at his table. But he came to them. He called on them before they ever called out to him. He, call, he came calling to them. He worthied the unworthy to sit at his table. And that call and that invitation is to you and to me, to all of us, right now, from Jesus, by Jesus, and for Jesus. And it's a, it's a call to those who have never come to that table, and it's a call to those who have, us who have been to the table and have to, have to come and realize and recognize, I've kind of gotten up and walked away. I've been wandering from the table. Come and find real life, true sustenance, full joy with Jesus at his, at his table. Point number two. There's a Judas at every table, even, even Jesus's. There's a Judas at every table, even Jesus's. So I want you to know, it, it, it truly breaks my heart <coughs> every time I learn of someone who's fallen away from faith in Christ. That's happened to multiple, multiple, multiple very dear and close, intimate friends of mine. It, it breaks my heart to find that they're disavowing the gospel, leaving the church, announcing their atheism, their agnosticism, their, their apostasy. And it's painful and infuriating, specifically for me as a pastor. It's painful and infuriating, like I want to set something or someone on fire. Every time I learn of yet one more Christian pastor or a leader who's now poisoned the reputation of Jesus and his bride, the church, with disqualifying sin, with unrepentance, revealing that they were merely using Jesus' gospel and his name for their own gain, for money, for power, for sexual pleasure, for themselves. Like, I want to break something, set something on fire. And it practically kills me to see the effect that this has on other people who are either thinking about coming to the table or who are at the table and really care about Jesus because it makes people think they can't be at the table with Jesus because of the Judas who sits there too. They're tempted to leave in disgust. They're tempted to think that the table that Jesus really is sitting at, this can't be the right one. Because what's Judas doing here? We can't trust this. But I want you to see three, at least three things in John 13 with this point, that there's a Judas at every table, even at Jesus' one. Number one is that Jesus is gracious. Jesus is gracious. He knows who Judas is. He knows what he's planning to do. Jesus has known, always known, who Judas was and what he was going to do. He's known that since before he let Judas be born. And yet he invites him. He calls him. He includes him. Spends a year and a half with him. Teaches him. Let's him do some work alongside of him. Sit at the table, eat the meal. He washes Judas's feet. He lowers himself before Judas. 
There's no table that you can sit at which you'll find more opportunity, where you'll find a greater, a greater and warmer invitation, welcome, inclusion, and love than Jesus' table because even Judas got to be there. He even loved Judas. Two is that Judas, I'm sorry, Jesus, Jesus is going to purify his table. Judas gets up and leaves. Judas is revealed. Jesus lets him loose to go and do and be what he truly wants. Listen, Judas doesn't get to stay at the table, not because Jesus doesn't want him there. He, he doesn't get to stay because Judas doesn't want to get to, he didn't want to stay there. And so Jesus goes in and says, go ahead and do what you want. And you don't belong here. You don't want to be here. You don't love me. So go and do and be and love and find what you want. Go to another table. I don't care. Go. go and, I know you want to. And that's what he does. Every time a Judas reveals himself at the table, it, it, listen, it is heartbreaking and terrible. It's bad. But I want you to know that you can find assurance that it's Jesus who is purifying his church. Jesus who is purifying his table, making sure that the Judas is revealed. So, he's faithful and he's gracious and he's going to purify his table. No Judas remains unrevealed and gets to, gets to stick around longer than Jesus says so. And number three, that Jesus is faithful. Look at this. Judas was at the table, Jesus' table, and Jesus is faithful. He says someone there is going to betray him. All right? Peter goes, all the disciples go, hold on, what? All right? Peter is like, hey, John, you're leaning against Jesus. I don't know what that's about, but you guys are really blowing it up over there. Just, oh, Jesus. All right, I love you, man. Thanks for being right. Hey, uh, can you ask him, like, is it one of us? Tell him, like, can you find out from who it is, right? Someone's going to betray him. Who? Oh, he says, the one, he refers to the Old Testament. He quotes it, he goes, the one who eats his, eats my bread is going to lift their heel against me. Well, aren't they all eating his bread? They're all eating a meal together. Aren't they all eating the bread? Oh, no, no. It's the one that he's going to dip the bread into the wine and then give it to. But he's serving the meal and he's serving the food and that's what he does for them all. He serves them communion. He takes the bread, dips in the wine and gives it to each of them. Right? That's why to us it might, when, we, when you see that passage, John 13, you go, man, the disciples are morons because they ask, who is it? He goes, oh, the one I give this bread and dip it in the wine. Oh, aha, Judas. And they go, oh. So who, right? No, it's because he was feeding them all. He was serving communion. What he said was right. But here, all of them are the ones he gives bread to. And all of them are the ones he serves communion to and dips the bread in the, in the wine for them. Is Judas the only one who betrays Jesus? No. Peter, three times punked out by a teenage girl. Did you know him? Are you one of them? No. Right? Three times. He even cusses about it. All of the rest of the disciples abandoned him. That night, he gets arrested. They skedaddle. Who is you, Lord? Uh-oh, cops, run. Right? They abandon him. They're not with him in his worst and most difficult moments. But they're all still going to return to Jesus' table. They're going to return and they're going to remain. They're going to stay with Jesus. And guess what? He's going to come find them again. When he rises from the dead, 
He comes and finds them. He goes to where they're praying. He goes to where they're eating. He finds them, and he welcomes them and accepts them. Even a true disciple who does betray and fail Jesus, maybe even leaves the table, he's faithful. You'll, still, you'll end up back at the table. You're going to stay with Jesus because he'll stay with you. John chapter 6 Verse 33, Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out. If you're a disciple of Jesus, you will persevere in your faith. You're going to stay at his table because he, he's going he's to preserve you. He'll keep you there. Every other table that you could sit at in life, listen, every other t- table you're going to sit at in life, whether it's uh, religions or politics or cultural tables, identity tables, career, even the family table, where now your meaning of your whole life is your family. And as long as my family's together and we're happy and we have good holidays and we have vacations together and we never fuss and we never fight and we just love each other all the time, it's great. Even that one, you got a Judas, even a temporary one at least. Someone's going to betray you. Someone's going to fail you. Someone's going to really screw up. Someone there is going to betray you in the very foundation. They're going to betray everything, the essence of what this table's supposed to be about. But none of them, none of these tables can assure you what Jesus does at his table. At his table, there's grace. At his table, it gets purified. And at his table, he'll never send you away from his table if you really do abide in him, if you want to be with him. Number three, point three, you can't sit at two tables at once. You can't sit at two tables at once. Listen, point three and four are practically duct taped together, so uh, they're going to be really related. The Bible says, Jesus says, no man can serve two masters at once. He'll either love the one and hate the other, or vice versa, right? You can't say, I've got two masters. You can't have two wives. Duh, right? You can't tell the truth and lie. At the same time, right? Even if you say something true, any, any shred of deceit mixed into that truth corrupts the whole thing and all becomes a lie. That's, that's the way Satan talks. Right? Satan, Satan's, he's called the deceiver. You know, you know Satan, Satan says true things all the time. That's why he's so convincing when he lies to you, because he tells you true lies. Right? He tells you true lies. I'd even say... I don't, I don't think it's wise for you to believe that you can have two churches. You can't have two wives, can't sit at two tables. Commit to a church. Love all churches. Great. Team with and partner with and love people from different churches. Right? Super. Like I, I, have a, I have a deep and abiding and committed relationship with several other churches, with friends and pastors, and I participate with them. I love, but this is, this is my one church. This is mine. You, you guys are mine. I'm yours. You can't love Jesus and abide with him at his table, but be a moral, spiritual, political, or social butterfly. There's no fluttering around at different tables. You're fooling yourself if you think that you can go and, and get some religion when you're feeling down or your life is a mess. You're fooling yourself when you think that you can get some Jesus on your kids, send them to the church, get them with the youth pastor, right? Get them to fix them, get some Jesus on them because they're wayward and crazy and you don't know what to do with them, right? You're fooling yourself if you think that's going to, A, work, or B, that God's okay with that. Absolutely lying to yourself. You can't love Jesus 
and sit at his table too. I'll be right back. I have multiple tables here. Jesus, right? You get it, right? You made me gregarious. You made me a seven in on the Enneagram, right? I'm an extrovert, right? No. There's one table, which, which means that a disciple surrenders to Jesus, right? That first week, a disciple then surrenders all their other tables that they go and sit at, and they gain their place at the only table that actually sustains and satisfies, which leads me to point four, and that's duct tape to it. You don't need Jesus to come to your table. You need to be at his. All these disciples left their tables. Peter was raised a fisherman. His dad was a fisherman. His grandfather, fisherman. Great-grandfather, fisherman. On and on back. That's not just what Peter was. That's who he was. There was no social no socioeconomic ladder in that day and time, right? Like, you think, like, go, like, if you're familiar, like, with the movie Dead Poet Society, right, where the, the kid's at the, like, private school, and it says academy, prep school, and he's, he's supposed to be a lawyer or a doctor or something just like his pops, but I want to be an actor, father, right? And so, in the end, his dad's, like, all mean because he's red from that 70s show, and he's just a jerk anyhow, so that's all he knows how to play, right? Okay, and, and you think he's mean? Listen, in Peter's day, there was no, Dad, uh, I was thinking, I, I mean, I like fishing. Fishing's okay. I was thinking maybe I could, like, become an auto mechanic. I was thinking of going to, like, you know, like, vocational school and learn another trade, maybe an electrician. I'm not even talking, want to go be, a, a, like, a poet or an actor or something. No, just, I, I want to, what are you talking about? Like, uh, he, his dad would probably mean, like, a, a dog can't become a cat, right? You can't just, like, change into something else. You are a fisherman, I want you, like, the reason I'm belaboring this is because Peter dropped his nets and followed Jesus. He left behind livelihood, and the only thing he knew how to do, and his whole life was, and his identity was wrapped up in that. He wasn't assured of any income now. Heck, he, he left home, and he left his wife there. Wait, Peter was married? Yeah, because at some point early on in the Gospels, after Peter becomes Jesus' disciple, Jesus is staying at his house, and Peter's mother-in-law is sick and dying, and Jesus heals her. He's got a mother-in-law, which indicates he had a wife. And Jesus heals her, which is why he ends up betraying Jesus, all right? So I can't believe you kept her around. Um, I love my mother-in-law. Disciple, like they leave, they'll leave any other table. And they don't want Jesus to come to theirs and bless theirs. They want to, they want to go to his. That's, this, that's what the rich young ruler of Mark chapter 10 actually wants. Hey, Jesus, I've shown up. I've come and shown up. Uh, look at my life. Look at my table I've set for myself. It's really good. What else, what else do I need? You want to come to my table here and, uh, and, and bless it? You want to do something to my table? That's what the Pharisees originally wanted when Jesus came on the scene. They started coming and talking to him. They, they, sent, they sent Nicodemus to, his house, to, to a house that Jesus is at in John chapter 3 to go, listen, we actually know you're from God. We don't hate you. Why don't you join our team? Let's combine forces. Get on our thing. We're already out ahead. Come on, right? They're trying to co-opt him. And that's what Judas wanted. That's why Judas betrayed Jesus. Because Jesus wasn't actually going to come to his table and make it work. Let me explain. Here's why Judas betrayed Jesus. It's because he 
he want, what he wanted. He thought that as Messiah, that he thought that Jesus was going to overthrow the Roman government. He thought Jesus was going to liberate Israel, ascend the throne as king of the Jews, raise an army, take over the world, and Israel would be over the whole world. That's what, that's what Judas believed. And John chapter 12 tells us that Judas didn't want and he didn't care about what Jesus wanted. John explicitly, John says in chapter 12, that Judas didn't care about the poor. He didn't love the sick. He, he had no interest in the sinner, the outcast, the lowly, the meek, the crippled. He loved money, and he wanted power and position. He answered Jesus' call to be a disciple because he thought Jesus was going to go somewhere and be someone. He thought he was going to go somewhere and do something that Judas wanted to do, too. So he was going to stick with Jesus, get on the inside track early, be a right-hand man, guy in Jesus' kingdom. Why? Because he loved himself. He'd been sticking with Jesus, not because he loved Jesus, but because he loved himself. And when he comes to really recognize and find out that this crazy, this crazy guy is actually going to go and get himself killed, and he's not going to conquer the Romans, and he's not going to become wealthy, well, I just invested a year and a half of my time and plans into this loser, this crazy person. So I better go and get whatever money and whatever connections I can. That's why he goes to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, to get money and make a connection. Be their inside man. A disciple isn't someone who lives their life their way on their time with their purpose and their vision and then, then asks Jesus to baptize it. It's not what a disciple is. That's not how they live. Seen it time and time again. Someone makes a bunch of moves for their life, choose a career, do their working and saving, investing. They set up their lifestyle, their home, their vacation plans, right house, good schools, right retirement plan, their preferred community, all of this stuff. And then once they finally feel like it's time, they ask, all righty, I'm here, Lord. What is your will? Lord, show me your will. What's next, Lord? What are we going to do? What, what do you want me to do? And time and time again, they end up sad. All too often, they end up further from Jesus and his will because he ends up telling them the same thing he tells all these other guys. Sell, sell a bunch of that stuff you just went through all the trouble to get a hold of. Move out of that spot that you love and you figured this was going to be the place of security and peace and direction. Change job, change careers, go a different direction, follow me. Jesus, Jesus calls his disciples to, he calls us, he says, pick up your cross, love your neighbor, and lay your, lay your life down for my name. But the tables that we want to be at and we're asking Jesus to baptize for us, the American dream, even for American Christians, says that we need to lay hold of our comfort we need to pick up our comfort, and we need to deny and reject and refuse and neglect our neighbor. And we need to guard our life with money and privacy fences and avoiding sacrifice. The disciples are eating Passover with Jesus, and he, and he, and he serves it in a new way. Actually, what he does here is he's repeating some of the things he said in John chapter 6. 
all right? He says in John 6, he's got, a, he's got hundreds of disciples, and he goes, oh, okay, we're getting way too big. Time to send a herd, okay? Uh, you want to be my disciple? You got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. What? You're crazy. That's disgusting. Are you a cannibal? I can't believe you. Hashtag at Jesus. You're a heretic. You have a demon. No more of this, right? Deconstructing my faith. I'm leaving. I'm up, I'm up out of here. You're crazy, right? Hashtag cult. Jesus then, <laughs> Jesus then turns to his disciples, his 12, and he goes, hey, uh, you guys want to leave too? And Peter speaks up for the group. He goes, uh, Master, who else would we go to? You have the words of life. We have no clue what you just said. We are disturbed. But we're going to stick with you. We don't know who else has, no one else has the words of life. There's no other table to go to. We're not going to go back to our old tables. We're going to stick with you. And so here, John 13, at his table, he then says, this is, my, this is the bread, that's my body. This is the wine, this is my blood. And you're going to take it. Here they are, not at tables of their own making, inviting Jesus into their lives, asking him to make their life work. Instead, they're at his table and his alone. Don't, don't set your life to going and then ask Jesus to bless it. You need to set your life aside. And you need to ask Jesus what he is blessing and then build your life with Jesus on that. I told you I'd wear out the metaphor of a table today. Let me, let, me, let me take you out of this metaphor and bring us to something more practical, literal, tangible, because that's what metaphors are supposed to do. They're supposed to give us this picture that leads us to a tangible, practical uh, thing. What does it mean to abide with Jesus? My hope is I've been able to reach to the heart today. So on a heart, emotional level, things are getting rearranged. What has, but what has God appointed for his disciples to do? We are to do something. Right? I just want to live Jesus. And that means he didn't tell me to do anything. This is not work for based for righteousness. You don't work for your righteousness, but you work from your righteousness. You're supposed to do stuff. So um, what has Jesus appointed for us to do for our part in abiding with him, to stay with him. Not going to be a surprise. I got three things. I bet you can guess them. Scripture, prayer, fellowship. Scripture, prayer, fellowship. Like, these aren't the only things we do, but if you want to abide, like Jesus tells you to, if you're going to be a, a, a disciple, if you actually want to abide and stay with Jesus, make sure you're at the right table. Scripture, prayer, fellowship. I don't think I'm ever going to be able to graduate from that. Scripture, do you have a plan? Do you have a place? Is there protection for it? Is there persistence? Any of you who have ever developed a new habit, you recognize that all four of those things are absolutely necessary. Any of you who have ever tried to make a habit and failed, because you're bad at making habits, you, you understand those four things too, because you failed a lot at them, like me. But I'll tell you what, the things you really care about, the things that happen in your life, you already do those four things. Because you might not be a very disciplined person who has great spiritual habits for this or that, but I'll tell you what, that game is on. I know there's a plan, there's a place, and I'm going to protect that time and that living room. I'm not going to schedule anything else. I'm going to turn down this event, that person. Sorry, I can't hang out with you. Turning my phone off for the first time in a week, but this is the only time my phone's off, right? I'm watching the game. I'm invested, and I'm going to persevere. Hey, can you? No, sorry, I'm sticking with it. 
right? Maybe, maybe during halftime, right? If, you, if, if it's a vacation or your career, whatever, you understand those four things. And you'll walk in them. You'll practice those things. So you, you do know how to do that. You abide with Jesus. You want to abide in his word. You want to open up the book that he wrote. And, and honestly, it's just really not going to happen unless you apply the four things you apply to everything else you truly love, apply it to God's word. You already know how to do it. And by the way, persistence is, is, is key. Uh, like one healthy, low-calorie meal uh, doesn't slim or trim you down. Like anyone ever been down that demoralizing road, right? I eat well, I ate way better, I had some green stuff, I ate under my caloric needs for this week, and I worked out every day, I'm exhausted on the scale. Gained a pound, ah, all those health nuts and exercise fools, they're lying to me. I actually have a thyroid problem, ah, that's why, so I'm going to sit, right? You, one meal, one week of eating well, doesn't change your life. Should you do that? Yes. Is it good? Yes. Is it better? Yes. And you, you know how this works so that tomorrow when you go, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, like, to try to really practice and I'm going to get back into the work. I'm going to make a plan and I'm going to have a place and I'm going to protect that spot and that time and I'm going to, if you don't persevere, you're going to be tempted to do like I, like I did in my younger days so many times. Open the Bible and go, Lord, show me. <sighs> Random page. Ah. <sighs> Nothing, nothing here really. I mean, they, they kill a goat, and then, okay, there's, some, there's a lady thrown out of the village because she, it's that time of the month. Now, okay, that, that's, I can't even, whoa, all right. Nothing in here about what I'm supposed to do with my kid or my depression or my sickness. You know, that's, that doesn't work. They go to a different table. Don't do that. You know that's not how that works. It takes time to digest, to let the nutrients work their way into your system. This is a table for daily eating enjoyment, developing over time in relationship. It takes time with God's word. And you, before you really get a sense, not simply that he showed you something like a lightning bolt in the word and really, oh, I feel like I got a revelation. Ah, uh, that's great, but that's nothing like over time, over months and years and decades, abiding and sticking and staying and persevering in his word, to come to find and realize, I feel really confident that God's word's in me. I know the heart and mind of the Lord more and more. And it happened once or twice a week, five minutes or ten minutes here or there. God's talking, but you can't hear him if you don't go to his word, if you don't go to the table where the meal is served. Prayer. Prayer, can I just tell, can I just like put the ball on the tee for you and give you two opportunities that you all know about? I'm just going to remind you. Every Sunday morning, we, we do pre-service prayer. That's when our church starts worshiping. I don't know why, I'm not even going to say the word excuse, but I don't know what reason you might have for not showing up for that. I don't know. But whatever good reason it is that you wouldn't come and pray with God's people, in worship, in preparation for worship, whatever your reason for that, even if it's good, it's nowhere near as good as the reason I have for you to actually be here. 
This God, God's talking to us, and we, he wants to talk to us, and, and he wants us to talk to him. He's, where, he's with us. And then February 5th, right after, right after service, like Steve Burton and, and, and uh, Stuart McGinnis, they've put together a really, really incredible, and I'm, I'm very excited for it, post-service prayer time. And they're even going to, they're, they're paying for the food. This is food. So stick around after church, spend time with the church after service to pray. We're going to pray in the building, over the building, thank the Lord. We're going to celebrate and remember over a meal in prayer. Listen, the disciples at this table, they're talking with Jesus, and he's talking to them. They're talking back and forth. They get to ask him questions. They get to learn. They're comforted. They're taught. They're directed. And they get to, they get to take what he said, and they get to work it out with him and one another. Listen, this is a relationship with Jesus. Abiding with him, abiding in him, it's a relationship with him. And it's done at a dinner table. Prayer at a dinner table. Not a drive through not Uber Eats, I'm just going to pull it up on my phone and got that taken care of. It's not McDonald's where our eyes are on our watches, our iPhones, we're trying to get in and out, we're trying to be efficient, I don't want to waste time, right? don't want to waste the Lord's time. Prayer, abiding in Christ means prayer like at a dinner table where, like with good friends, and I know many of you have been here, where you find yourself at a friend's table, I mean there's still dishes on the table but the food's all done. The leftovers are getting cold. No one's even gotten up to take them to the, to the kitchen because the conversation is so good. Right? You're on your, the four, the five, the six of you, you, you guys are on your second or third bottle of um, RC Coca-Cola, right? Right? And just, there's laughter. You're sharing. You're remembering, right? You're, you're learning new stuff about each other. Oh, my, I can't, I, I can't believe I've known you all these, and I never knew that about you. Ah, oh, right? Is, is that an efficient 15-minute meal, those hours, it's time, and it's time well spent. This abiding happens when you take your time, when you take up God's time, when you make time, when you no longer consider any time talking with God a waste. Finally, fellowship. Who's at the, ta- who's at the table? John 13, who's at the table? His disciples, plural. The disciples have become children of God, heirs of God. The Bible says fellow inheritors with Jesus, the Son. They're at the table abiding with Jesus, who is God. They're abiding with God and one another as brothers. I guarantee some of you, too many of you, even some who ought to be here and are not here today, you're trying to figure out how to get a private table with Jesus where it's just you and him. You prefer that. You're okay being at the restaurant with the family from time to time, but I'm good at a private table with me and Jesus. I don't, need, or I don't really need my brothers and sisters. I'll visit them every, every now and then a little bit, but I don't really like them. I don't really feel like I need them. Maybe I don't feel like they want me or need me. Maybe I worry that they ought not, they shouldn't want me or include me. Maybe you just don't feel like being around them is all that useful. What does it do? What's the big deal? There's some other really important things. They're my brothers and sisters. They, they forgive me if I'm not around much. They forgive me. It's grace. I want you to know that this is not the view, vision, or value that Jesus holds. That's not what Jesus thinks, and that's not, that's not how he feels, and that's not what he wants. 
that it's not the relationship Jesus has saved and called us into. That's not the table he has set for you. The private, disconnected, or semi-disconnected solo table that you want with Jesus, but not with your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's just you going back to point four and thinking you can make a second table that Jesus will come to. That's just you thinking you can have a private table and then the family table too. You can't have both. And you need to be at his with the family, not your own and him coming to you and hanging out with you individually, all alone. The only thing Jesus is interested in doing when you ask him to come to your table, the only thing he's going to do is get to your table to tell you to scoot your seat back, stand up, and come join me with the brothers and sisters. He's got nothing else to say when he comes to your table. Follow me. John 13's table is where Jesus serves communion, enjoying and being satisfied, sustained by Jesus in community with him, with his disciples. And we do this every Sunday. I don't know if you knew that. And we, don't, we, we never change the time. It's 10 a.m. We never change the time community group with leaders who want you. Community group members who want you. Who love you. And they need you. You need them. Bible study's coming up. Christian, Christian Wall's gonna start a Bible study through the book of Jeremiah. And he's a good teacher. and Way smarter than me. And it's gonna be Fabulous. And we're going to worship and honor the Lord and be together and be with him as the Bible's open. We're going to learn and be taught and we're going to be fed a meal at his table. Tonight, the BGA is happening. The men are invited to my home. Some of you have been there a lot. Some of you have never been there at all. Some of you have been there a few times. I'm not mad at anyone who is not coming or hasn't come. I'm not mad. At worst, I'm sad because... I love the brothers, and I've seen what God does amongst his sons when they gather in his name and they serve and love one another. I want that for you. I get it. I get it because I'm there. I get it. I want that for you, to abide with Jesus and, and your brothers and sisters. You should come to BGA tonight. Come find me after service. I'll give you the directions, the address. I'll tell you what time and everything. Pick up your phone and call someone. Stop waiting for someone else to call you. Pick up your phone and text someone. Stop waiting for everyone else to have to text you. When they text you, respond. Crying out loud in the name of the Lord Jesus and by his authority as your pastor, respond to a text. Abide in Christ and love and serve the brothers and sisters. Jesus tells his disciples at the beginning of John 13, before they get to the table, before they even get to the table, he washes their feet. He says, the way I'm loving and serving you now, washing your feet, feeding you this meal, talking to you, listening, teaching, and caring about you, all right, I'm about to go someplace. So now, you guys got to do this. What I'm doing, you do this to each other. If you're abiding with Jesus, you're abiding with the brothers and sisters. And if you're abiding in Jesus, then that's going to lead to the S in this acronym, which is serves. But guess what? You can't obey Jesus' command to serve and love one another you can't obey it if you don't abide with him, with the family he dwells with, with his people, your brothers and sisters. 
if you're not in that community and not in one of those lives, then you can't, there's no, you can't obey, therefore you're disobeying. And I love you. And Jesus calls you to repentance. He loves you. Come and abide with Jesus at his table. Receive and enjoy his grace. Lay hold of life and peace and rest. Be sustained and celebrate with him and his people. That's where disciples go. That's where they stay. That's where disciples are made. So speaking of that table, I take us to the Lord's table and communion. Let's, we're going to come in a few seconds up front.